If you love the History Extra podcast and want to help us keep bringing you brilliant episodes, then please share it with a friend or a fellow history fan who you think might enjoy it. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This Father's Day, give Dad the gift that guarantees him a great morning every day. That's Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's Best Pair You'll Ever Wear or its free guarantee. Get 30% off gifts for Dad on select Father's Day styles at TommyJohn.com. Save 30% at TommyJohn.com. See site for details. Welcome to the first part of BBC History Magazine's January 2009 podcast. I'm Sue Wingrove and I'm the acting editor of the magazine. And I'm Rob Attar, section editor of the magazine. Coming up in this podcast... People climbing out of coffins, so the coffin lids coming off and individuals climbing out of where they've been buried. That was art historian Beth Williamson describing to Dave Musgrove part of the medieval painting of The Last Judgment at Dauncey Church in Wiltshire. When the London County Council was created in 1889, their own um, medical officers and statisticians went into the nickel and were absolutely astonished and appalled uh, by, by what they saw. And that was Sarah Wise, who paints a vivid picture of daily life in one of Britain's most notorious Victorian slums. We'll hear more on these topics in a moment, and of course they are both explored in the January 2009 issue of BBC History magazine, which is on sale now. Rob, what else can we look forward to in the magazine this month? Well, Sue, this year is a bicentenary of the birth of Charles Darwin, so our feature, Darwin versus God, asks if Darwin's theory really did cause a furore among the Christian community. We also look at the Battle of Corunna in 1809, a crucial victory for Britain against Napoleon in the Peninsular War. Plus, we have features on Robert Burns, born 250 years ago, and Francis Bacon, a true Renaissance man. All these features are in the January 2009 issue of BBC History magazine, which is on sale now with a portrait of Darwin on the cover. And if you'd like to get the magazine delivered through the post each month, you might like to take advantage of our brilliant subscription offer. UK listeners who subscribe to BBC History magazine will receive a fantastic 30% discount off the shop price. This offer closes on the 27th of February 2009. For more details, please go to www.subscribeonline.co.uk forward slash history magazine or you can call us on 0844 844 0250 and quote the code POD0109 to make sure that you don't miss out on this great offer. Now if you're listening to this podcast outside of the UK then you can still get the magazine sent to you anywhere in the world. Just call plus four four. 844-844-0250 for details. In the little Wiltshire village of Dauncey, the ancient church of St James the Great is the home of a rare painting known as the Dauncey Doom Board. It depicts the Last Judgment, which in Christian belief is the apocalypse, the moment when the souls of humans are judged by Christ and rise or descend to their fates. This dramatic painting has now been restored, so on a cold and frosty winter's day, our editor Dave Musgrove met up with art historian Beth Williamson to warm himself before the fires of hell. 
So here I am in Dauncey Church in Wiltshire, and we're having a look at the medieval doom board. So th- this is a, a medieval doom painting. What's, mm-hmm. Can you just tell us what's the point in these? Why, why have these in churches? Well, what we see here is a representation of the Last Judgment. We've got Christ at the top. Um, you can tell that he's Christ because he's wearing a, a cruciform halo, and he's got his wounds um, shown, ha- wounds in the hands and the side. And seated on um, a sort of common arched rainbow kind of a form. And below him, you've got the Virgin Mary and St. John who are interceding with him. In other words, they're, they're helping or hoping to um, mitigate the punishment of the human sinners beneath at the, at the time of the judgment. And you've got on the left top um, saved sinners being received into the kingdom of heaven by St. Peter, who's holding his keys. Um, so we know it's St. Peter because he holds the keys to the kingdom of heaven, according to is, Matthew. Is that, the, is that St. Peter's gate there going into heaven? Exactly, yeah. so that's the, the entrance to the kingdom of heaven, which is normally understood in this kind of iconography as a city, as a beautiful city. So it's very uh, lush, the architecture. You've got um, carvings and you've got battlements and you've got towers and you've got glazed windows, very... Um, what they would have thought of as the epitome of something smart. Somewhere you decidedly want to be. Somewhere you really want to be. Whereas on the other side, at the bottom right, you've got um, the representation of a dragon-like mouth with fire issuing out, out of it. And that's a standard iconography at this time for the mouth of hell. So the people who are going down in there, being helped in by demons and devils, are the ones who have not been saved. Um, the point of this is to remind people about the... Uh, the inevitable last judgment at the end of time when they will either be among the saved or they'll be among the damned. And it's to remind people during their earthly life that they have to make a choice as to how they live in order to be on the right side of this judgment. We don't have a lot of evidence of paintings like this particularly being used during sermons, but one can imagine that preaching would be going on and moralising texts would be read and that kind of thing where people would be able to see this and would make connections. We do have some evidence of people pointing to these kinds of paintings in Italy, for example, and, and using the paintings very explicitly in their sermons. So one can imagine that a preacher in a church like this might actually use it as a visual aid. Mm. But people also tend to forget that um, the, the congregation of a church like this would also use it outside of services. So they would come in and pray individually and light candles and visit the shrines of the saints and look at this kind of thing in a different kind of a way, in a more devotional and private way, and meditate upon it. They didn't necessarily only have to see it in the service of the, the liturgy, in the service of the Mass. And I suppose we're looking at this now uh, as, a, as a unique thing, but presumably there would have been other paintings around the walls of the church, perhaps, before it was all whitewashed. I mean, this, so it wouldn't, this wouldn't have been the only visual representation that was, that was here. Precisely. It was very, very common in English churches, for example, to have a St Christopher on the wall opposite the door that you would enter. And this church, like many others, has got a, a door at the west end, but it's much more common for, the, for people to enter from one of these side doors. So that would be the, the normal way of entering. And you'd very often have a St. Christopher that you would see as you walk in. And the reason for seeing someone like St. Christopher is he, he was a very, very popular devotional saint, but he was also someone that, um, if you saw him in a day, it would guard against dying um, in, a, in a state of sin. It would be something that it was a good idea, an insurance policy, to see St. Christopher every day if you could. Okay. Now, just going back to the painting again, so is, is this a fairly typical depiction of, of, of the Last Judgment? Is this, is this the normal way of representing it? Yes, on the whole. It would be the kind of thing that is typical enough that someone coming in and looking at it would not have to be re-instructed if they knew what the iconography of the Last Judgment normally was. Mm. You normally have 
um, on the, the left as we're looking at it, but on the right hand of God is where you see the saved. So you would expect to see heaven, um, the, the, the righteous, on that side, and you would therefore correspondingly expect to see hell on the other side, which is God's left hand, the, the less favoured side, which is where the word sinister comes from, from the Latin for left. And that, that's universal, isn't it? It's always God's exactly. right is, is, the, is the place you want to be. God's right is the place to be. So is this in any way meant to scare? Well, there's, there are differences of opinion about how this was meant to be received, and, and one tended to read in, in older uh, treatments of this kind of iconography that people were supposed to be in fear. But as I said, it, it's also something to remind you of the redemption, that... The people, there are people up there being saved, and there are more of them than the ones that are going down into hell. You've also got the Virgin Mary and St. John, as I mentioned earlier, who are praying for the souls of the dead and trying to persuade Christ to judge them leniently and kindly. So it's not all about fear. It's about reminding people, actually, of the, of the purpose of, of, of Christ's mission on earth, that he died in order that souls could be redeemed. And we've got we've got these souls walking up, praying on the on the on the right hand side of God, and they are they are looking to a, a happy happy future. Precisely, they're on the road. We assume up to um, to be to be judged, and they look as though they're going to be walking up and joining the others up, up at the kingdom of heaven. And we've got these these quite curious characters, which I, I said earlier I thought they were in sacks, but but mm. but it's it's slightly more <laughs> sensitive than that. Yes, I mean if one looks at them, what what one can see is a, a sack, as you say, a sort of sack-like piece of cloth drawn and tied above their heads. Um, it's quite common in these kinds of representations to see at the very bottom of a doom painting souls climbing out of or embodied souls, uh, because of course you get your body back at the last judgment people climbing out of coffins, so the coffin lids coming off and individuals climbing out of where they've been buried. In this case, the artist has used shrouds um, to represent their having been buried, so the ones at the very bottom that are still inside the shrouds um, are yet to arise from their graves. The ones who are walking up the path have risen from their their graves. Sure. And then over on the on the on the right hand side of painting, on God's left hand side, we've got these unfortunates who, who are going into the mouth of hell. Mm. Um, and, and these figures are sort of chained, aren't they? And that was quite typical that they that they would have been chained to, to be taken into hell. Sometimes you get that. Yes, you get them that they they are wearing chains or they're tied in some way. But just as often, they are just being herded into the hell mouth or apparently walking headlong into it. In this case, we've just got three figures who look similar to one another, but in other Last Judgment representations, you sometimes get um, clear differentiations between um, types of people. So you get people wearing clergyman's clothing or or wearing a bishop's mitre, which is to remind everyone that death is the leveller, that all people could just as easily go to hell as go to heaven if they do the wrong things. I mean, they don't look desperately troubled by by, by what's what's coming their way, do they? I mean, their, their facial features aren't aren't particularly exaggerated. Is it, is it an accomplished piece of art, or is this...? Certainly, yeah. I mean, Pevsner said, as I said, when he uh, described it, I've just been looking in his description of this church, that it was of poor quality. And it depends on what standard you judge it. Um, but for this kind Pevsner of thing... Pevsner did have quite high standards, didn't Pevsner had some very strange ideas, too. <laughs> um, for this kind of thing, and for what it was doing, it's doing its job very, very well. And as I said, for example, the Kingdom of Heaven is painted with great care, and great attention to what is, is uh, a representation of a splendid holy city. And Christ and the Virgin and John the Baptist are painted very, very well. Um, there are differences, as you said, in, in the ways in which 
figures are painted, yeah. but it's not a bad painting in any way. So, Beth, that brings us on to who actually would have been involved in painting this? Who, who would have put this together? It's very, very hard to know for painting of this type and of this age who painted it. We almost never have names of artists for this kind of work. Um, but it's likely that it would have been a workshop rather than one person. And a workshop needn't be an enormous number of people, but several people working on something like this collaboratively was the normal medieval way of producing art like this. Would they have been given a commission to produce this then? Yes, indeed. Um, the, the people who were responsible for commissioning something like this, probably the clergy or the... Um, in, in conjunction with the local landowners sometimes would, would come up with an idea of something they want, very often based on something they've seen elsewhere. And that's why you get sort of local schools of painting looking the same, that someone might base their judgment on something in another church or something in an abbey nearby. We're not far from Malmesbury Abbey. It's quite likely that they might well have called on the services of artists that have been available to an abbey like that or in other places, the nearby cathedral or what have you, the sort of centre, ecclesiastical centre of the, of the locality, and would, would use artists that were tried and tested in places like that. They could have been monastic artists. They could have been lay people by this age. It's, it's not uncommon now uh, in the 15th century for artists to be lay people. And what would have been the inspiration for the images depicted? Are they just copying from things that they've seen before or how much, how much of a free reign would an artist be given to produce this? Sort of that's thing? always a question that's very hard to answer unless you have documentation talking about the commission, which we almost never have. Um, Broadly speaking, this is textual-based. Um, we know about the, um, the, the last judgment from the book of Revelations, the last book of the Bible. And, there are... uh, and then finally, Beth, what, what does this painting and, and, uh, and the tradition of painting tell us about the, the medieval people who, who painted it and looked at it? What's, what's, what insight does it give us into the medieval mindset, would you say? Well, the medieval mindset's a very difficult concept, isn't it? Because we're talking about hundreds and thousands of people over hundreds of years. Um, but generally speaking, what people have always assumed is that medieval people, ordinary medieval people, were very, very um, fearful in their religion and that they were, as you said, that this was something to instill fear in them and that they all would have been terrified of death and the last judgment. But it's quite possible, as I said, that this might have been seen if you were devout and leading your life um, as best you could and, and leading a good life, it could have been seen as having a comforting element. So I think it, it tells us that there are diversities of ways in which one could interpret this. It tells us, of course, that the centre of the church, the, both the church building and the whole uh, mission of the Christian church at the time was to um, to re remind people that Christ had died for them and they would, they're being reminded of that with the wounds there. So this would have been a, a very important aspect of people's religion and belief. And that was art historian Beth Williamson of the University of Bristol talking to Dave Musgrove. The Dauncey painting has recently been restored so you can see it in person by visiting the Church of St James the Great in Dauncey in Wiltshire. There's also a photograph of it in our January issue of BBC History magazine. Now, the medieval period is commonly seen as an age of faith, and you might think that the sobering subject of the Dauncey painting, The Last Judgment, would be enough to convince anyone of the importance of living a devout life. However, as it turns out, many medieval Europeans had doubts about God, and this is explored in a feature by historian John Arnold, also in the magazine this month. 
In a moment, we'll be venturing inside a notorious Victorian slum with author Sarah Wise. But first, here's Rob to recommend three historical things to do in January. OK, first up is my choice of exhibition of the month. This one, which only just creeps into January, is Andrea Palladio, His Life and Legacy. It opens at the Royal Academy of Arts on 31st of January, and it explores the work of one of the great European architects. Palladio created some marvellous buildings in Italy in the 16th century, and was then rediscovered by English architects in the 18th century, who incorporated his designs into some of the country's grand mansions. Secondly, the 27th of January is Holocaust Memorial Day in Britain. There will be several events taking place around the country to mark this occasion. We don't have time here to give you a comprehensive list, but do check out your local listings, or alternatively visit the website www.hmd.org.uk. And on a related subject, my TV choice for this month is The Diary of Anne Frank on BBC One. As many listeners will know, Anne was a Jewish girl who hid from the Nazis for two years in Holland, before being eventually captured and killed. Her diary of this period is one of the best-selling books of all time, and it has now been dramatised for the BBC. It is due to be shown from the 5th to the 9th of January. However, schedules can change, so please do check your listings guide. Or alternatively, you can also sign up for our weekly TV and radio email. This is an e-newsletter which will drop into your mailbox each week with details of the must-see history programmes on TV and radio. To sign up, just go to our website at www.bbchistorymagazine.com. And looking ahead, TV chef Ainsley Harriet is one of the celebrities who will be discussing his family history at this year's Who Do You Think You Are Live. The annual extravaganza takes place at Olympia, London, from 27th of February to the 1st of March. For tickets and more information, please call 0844 412 4629 or visit the website www.whodoyouthinkyouarelive.co.uk. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Now, I recently spoke to author Sarah Wise, whose feature in the January issue of BBC History magazine explores the policing of a notorious Victorian London slum called the Old Nickel. Sarah is the author of The Italian Boy, Murder and Grave Robbery in 1830s London, which was shortlisted for the 2005 Samuel Johnson Prize for Nonfiction. Her latest book is The Blackest Streets, The Life and Death of a Victorian Slum, published by The Bodley Head. Sarah lives in London, not too far from the location of the area she explores in her book, and she joined me on the phone from there. So, hello, Sarah. Hello. Now, your book looks at this notorious 15-acre slum and explores the political, economic and social issues of the period uh, through the slum. Um, Now, the slum was called the Old Nickel. Where exactly was it? Well, it lay just to the east of Shoreditch High Street in central east London, and it was around a square quarter mile in area. One of the oddest things about it was that it was cut off from the main surrounding streets, um, and it was really only accessible by tiny alleyways or very, very short, narrow streets. So this was like a sort of ghetto, was it? Was it something that respectable people avoided going into? 
it, it seemed to have a reputation um, as a ghetto. One chap who grew up there later described it uh, as you felt that there was a wall enclosing you and he got the impression that uh, everything that you needed had been put inside it so that the people of the nickel wouldn't have to come out and, as he put it, make a nuisance of themselves uh, in the surrounding district. Um, I think the, the ghetto thing ca uh, partly came about because it was so sort of difficult to enter and um, partly because it was rather maze-like if you look at its street plan and also partly because it was such a very poor and uh, inward-looking district. One thing that researchers in 1889 discovered was that the old nickel had the highest density of London-born residents anywhere in the capital. 34% um, of Londoners in the late 1880s had been born outside London. That's either abroad or more commonly um, elsewhere in the UK and had migrated to the city. But that figure dropped to just 12% in the nickel, um, which made it atypically uh, homogeneous uh, in terms of uh, culture and nationality. OK. So if you were a stranger to London and you inadvertently wandered into the old nickel in, in say, 1890, uh, what would you see when, when you got inside? Well, I think... The first thing that would probably strike you um, is, and, and people did comment on it at the time, was the extreme narrowness of the streets. The very widest were found to be 28 feet wide, um, but that was the exception. Some alleys were said to be so narrow that you needed to turn sideways uh, to walk along them if you didn't want to brush your clothing against the walls. So people were living in this kind of miniaturized um, space. Everything was really quite tiny. Um, and the physical squalor of the place was very marked, and that's even in contrast to other very poor districts uh, surrounding it. The houses had, uh, for the most part, been very badly jerry-built at the start of the 19th century, although it is true that there were a few survivors from the original late 17th century wave of building. Um, these, these older ha houses were standing up much better than the newer stock, funnily enough, uh, and the older, the older houses had these typical weaver's windows, which uh, were, were very noticeably odd uh, to any architecturally-minded visitors who strolled into the nickel in the late 19th century. But say the majority of the uh, homes had been slung up uh, between 1800 and 1820, and they'd been built with, for the most part, they had uh, no foundations. It was just uh, planks laid on to bare earth. The poor quality brick had been used, and also this rather alarming stuff called billy sweet, which was a cheap alternative to mortar, and it involved the, uh, the, the cheaply come-across byproducts of a local soap factory, uh, and that was said to have caused um, dreadful sort of... Uh, quality walls and ceilings and what have you. Um, ground floors in the nickel tended to lie as much as 18 inches below street level, so um, there was almost instant flooding in, in a rainstorm. So I think you really notice how bad, how bad the, the, the buildings were looking um, about 80 years after they'd gone up. Mm, so they were really packed in, weren't they? They were absolutely packed in. And the old nickel, um, Bethnal Green had one of the worst overcrowding rates in the whole of London in these years. And, and the old nickel had the highest overcrowding rate in Bethnal Green. Um, just as one example, at number 53 Old Nickel Street, um, it, this was a house with 10 rooms, and it was discovered to be home to 90 people. And um, one of the other things I think... Um, 
I think people then found out that we would find extraordinary the preponderance of, of children. 40% of the Nichols 5,700 residents were under the age of 15. And why was that? Bethnal Green did have uh, one of the nation's highest, highest birth rates. Obviously, people have far more children in general in those days. Um, but I think it's, it's also true to say that the nickel became home because it, its rents were um, among the cheapest you could find anywhere in London, that two shillings and sixpence uh, was a going rate for a, for a single room. It, it, Although it did have many long-term residents whose parents and grandparents had lived there, you did have a settled population, but it was also attractive in its strange way to people who'd fallen on hard times for many many reasons, one of which being perhaps um, if your husband was in prison or had deserted you or you were widowed, um, you you needed to live somewhere cheap. And so you did did tend to get women uh, with children on their own. I see. So uh, there was quite um a... a small working population of the nickel in the nickel, um, and the ones that did work, how did they earn a living? Well, it, it, it is true that um, unemployment was was common um, because the mid to late 1880s was a time of chronic unemployment, um, and so in addition to people who were just simply unable to find jobs, you had many who were also very precariously employed. Um, typically, your your daily employed, your daily hired casual dock labourers uh, or building site workers uh, who again would crowd around the gates in the morning trying to get a day's work um, you had hawkers and costermongers again whose living uh, was very precarious um, so it, it's true that Nickel was home to one of the most destitute populations in London but um, it, it's also true that it was home to many hard working uh, and industrious and, and in their own way sort of quite successful artisans as I've said, many of them working in the furniture trade. One-fifth of people um, worked uh, in something to do with, with furniture. Um, but there were other artisan occupations going on, too. Um, some of the best silk weaving, uh, some of the best silk that you could get in the whole of Europe was still being spun uh, in old nickel garrets. And you had people like brass finishers, uh, people who worked at japanning, um, ivory workers, mol- marble workers, very highly skilled workers who were just finding it very difficult, uh, increasingly difficult to compete in uh, very cutthroat markets. And you did have the occasional um, white-collar workers to uh, the Port of London Authority. You had some clerks who worked there. Some of the young women were starting to take up um, jobs as shop girls in the expanding uh, retail sector. And the other funny thing, um, the old Nichols' posthumous reputation was that it was a police no-go area. But that's absolute nonsense because five police officers chose to live in the Nickel. I see. And, um, yes, you talk a lot more about the, the police um, in the Nickel and your feature, so um, we just can have a look there to find out more about that aspect of it. Um, going back to, to the houses, now if you were invited into one of these houses, you've already talked about it being um, very, very cramped and very overcrowded. Um, what were they like inside? I mean, they, they sound as if they were falling down. Half of them. Yes, m- many of them were in- extraordinarily dilapidated. And you have tales of visitors going in to look at conditions and just looking up at a top, in a top floor and, and finding they're just looking at the sky. Or when they're talking to a resident, it starts raining in the room. Um, because the homes were so squalid, 
and the landlord took very little interest uh, beyond collecting the weekly rent. This squalor did have a sort of uh, <laughs> sort of odd attraction in a way uh, because they were very suitable for these many of these people that I've mentioned who work from home uh, in their own little industry. So you could customise the rooms um, to, uh, to to be a fish smoker, for example. That was a big trade in the nickel. Uh, selling fried fish around the streets from a barrow. Well, you could do your own food preparation um, because the landlord just wasn't around to complain. Uh, many of many of the people had their own workbenches uh, in their or looms. The weavers had their looms uh, in their crowded little homes, and. Um, some of the costermongers kept their donkeys uh, in their rooms. Uh, or if you were an animal breeder or, or a bird breeder for the nearby Club Row Market, uh, many people just kept their animals in their rooms. So rooms were certainly, you'd notice how very crowded they were, either with other people uh, with whom you had to lodge or with equipment or, as I've said, with the um, large range of um, animal life. Um, the physical fabric was very poor, so uh, there was all, almost pervasive damp just everywhere and vermin uh, were unfortunately frequently found living in the wallpaper or in the woodwork and um, when one court was demolished in 1889 the workmen went on strike since every single one of them became infested with lice or fleas when they entered the properties to start demolition um, furniture was, was, was really quite scarce for the poor and um, there's eyewitness accounts that packing crates from Spitalfields Market often did duty for things like chairs and tables and even the baby's cot. There must have been an incredible cacophony of sounds and smells. I think oh, I think it's quite a noisy place and uh, it smells... I imagine if you live there over a long time you just stop noticing, noticing it. I mean, in the way that we just don't seem probably in the cities or, or even not just the cities today, we don't smell petrol fumes. I always think if a Victorian to walk into one of our streets they'd probably find it very hard to breathe with the stink of, you know, cars. But we don't even notice that. Uh, and similarly, we'd be shocked by, I say, the smell of the woodwork, uh, woodworking trade, the smell of uh, the fish baking, uh, the smell of the, the rotting buildings, but uh, I suspect that once you live there for a while, you just didn't even notice it. I mean, there must have been many slums in Victorian cities at this time. Um, the old nickel does sound like it was one of the worst, but why was it so infamous? It certainly was one of the worst. It had uh, among the highest death rates in the whole of England and Wales, not just in London. Um, it had double the death rates at 40 deaths per thousand um, uh, whereas in London per year, about 19 to 20 per thousand was the death rate, and that tended that was more or less in line with the UK death rate. Um, for children, uh, it had one of the worst uh, rates in the country. At 250 per thousand children under the age of one uh, would die each year, uh, which was an appalling figure that the parish authorities knew about, and their very brave medical officer of health constantly tried to get change uh, by quoting these statistics and then when the London County Council was created in 1889 their own um, medical officers and statisticians went into the nickel and were absolutely astonished and appalled uh, by, by what they saw um, and 
housing was one of the, the early LCC's very first sort of planks of policy and they were determined to uh, embark on a huge slum clearance project and they asked members of the pu public to write in and nominate the districts that they really thought should be dealt with urgently and the old nickel came out uh, top of the public's recommendations uh, for urgent action um, and so uh, in 1893 uh, the demolition total demolition between 1893 and 1896 uh, the London County Council just tore the entire place down goodness so what happened to the people there they were evicted in five stages over the three years and the London County Council attempted to try to find properties uh, in a locality uh, that were affordable to them and suitable to the sort of trades that they wanted to carry out. But it was only when they um, actually tried to uh, talk to landlords to get them to take people from the nickel that the LCC suddenly realised what they were up against. There was a huge prejudice against people who had had a nickel address, the idea being that they would be criminal or moonlight flitters or lazy or drunken. So a lot of landlords wouldn't take people who came from the nickel. Uh, similarly, um, other charitable philanthropic housing um, uh, associations wouldn't take people with a nickel address. And the London County Council um, tried very hard to, to persuade people, uh, you must take them, you know, there's nothing wrong with them, but there was an immense amount of prejudice. So unfortunately, uh, what happened was that, I say, 5,700 people were evicted, but just 11 of them got um, rooms in the wonderful new estate that the London County Council built on the site of the Nickel, the Boundary Street estate. Mm. That's very sad, isn't it? It is very yes. sad. They yeah. had to pack into um, very already very overcrowded districts surrounding the Nickel. Therefore, the LCC had accidentally made the overcrowding problem in Bethnal Green and Shoreditch uh, even worse. So um, if you go today to, uh, to where the old nickel was situated, um, is the, the, the Boundary Street estate that replaced it, is that still there? It is, and it, it's still absolutely magnificent. It was um, built in the, the, the Queen Anne revival style in um, beautiful sort of uh, red brick and terracotta. Uh, and one critic at the time sort of you know, snorted that why on earth were you building um, Norman Shaw-style mansion blocks for, for, for the working classes? Um, it's got a, still got this amazing central raised garden with a bandstand on the top of it. Uh, and and when, you, when you walk there, you think it, it, it looks surreal. It's more like something you would expect to find in a rather well-heeled um, home county's village. Uh, and it, it was built to such terrifically high quality with all the best materials um, that, it, uh, you know, 100 years later, it's still holding up very well, still looks great, and it's um, grade two star listed. And thanks to Sarah, who was talking about what life was like for the people living in one of London's poorest areas in the 19th century. Her fascinating book, The Blackest Streets, The Life and Death of a Victorian Slum, is available from our BBC History Bookstore, price £14. For details of how to order, look in the magazine or on our website at www.bbchistorymagazine.com. That brings us to the end of this podcast from BBC History magazine. For more on these topics, plus all our other features, do look out for the January issue. And don't forget that UK listeners who subscribe to BBC History magazine before the 27th of February will receive a fantastic 30% discount off the shop price. For more details, go to www.subscribeonline.co.uk forward slash history magazine or call us on 0844 844 0250 and quote the code POD0109 
to ensure that you don't miss out on this fantastic offer. If you're listening to this podcast outside the UK, you'll be pleased to learn that you can get the magazine sent to you anywhere in the world. Just call plus four four eight four four eight four four zero two five zero for details. And don't forget, you can download all our previous podcasts from 2007 and 2008 on the website at www.bbchistorymagazine.com.